I'm a very passionate mother and I really believe that, that you give as much time as you can. They become, that, you know, the time you give them never comes back. Most people you'll talk to who are successful go, oh, I don't burn out. It's all about balance. Give a busy job to a busy person and get it done. I'm like, bullshit. Sorry about swearing. but <laughs> I'm very strong and resilient now, but there were definitely times where I was falling off the wagon multiple times in a row. And I think it's just continually getting through those days. For me, the hardest part, and it's been quite publicly known, was the injuries. I mean, that happened three Olympics in a row, two world championships, one Commonwealth Games. You know, I failed getting, to, getting into medicine the first time. I've had multiple relationship failures. My marriage has failed. I had eating issues. It's just that in the end, I just allow myself to be imperfect. And once you realize that you're, you don't have to be superhuman, all of a sudden you become a little more in that direction and start achieving things because you let go of some of the hangups. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfillment along the way. Hello, beautiful people, and Happy New Year. I hope you had an amazing break with family and loved ones. We are kickstarting 2019 with such a good guest for a new year. She is one of the most inspirational people going around. So today we welcome Jana Pittman, an iconic Aussie athlete who not only represented the country at three Olympic Games, but was also the first female athlete to compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games. Fun fact, my fiancé Nick was actually her training partner way back and a groomsman at her wedding, and I'm so lucky to have known the absolute powerhouse that is Yana for quite a few years now. If being a two-time world champion and four-time Commonwealth champion as a 400-metre hurdler, then heading to the Winter Olympics for bobsled didn't already have you in awe, Yana is also a mum of three, author, speaker, and, get this, future doctor, currently undergoing her studies in medicine. And as she'll explain in the episode, she's actually going to end up with multiple degrees and is doing her honours and masters in different things at the same time and also doing a heap of charity work already for the Australian Cervical Cancer Foundation, among many other things. Her incredible achievements are too many to list, but she is one of only nine athletes to win world championships at the youth, junior and senior levels of her event and interestingly her athletics career wasn't even the highlight of what she's achieving so far and I can only imagine that her motivation and drive will continue to shine through in her medical career. Thank you so much for joining us today Yana. My pleasure. It's amazing you've just got so much going on I cannot wait to share how much has happened since you know I think you're an absolute household name as an iconic Aussie athlete but so much more has happened since then it's so exciting. Well, I think it's more <laughs> exciting actually my post sports life I think is going to be even more interesting I think than my than my career but I was Obviously, I was very lucky for, to do athletics for so many, many years, but coming and going into something I love probably even more so than running actually is, is really quite, I'm very quite lucky. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. And I think it is really hard to, you know, I know Nick and I have spoken about it quite a lot, that post-athletics or post any kind of elite sport, it is really hard to pivot and find something you love again because it can be quite a short-lived career with injury yeah. or um, just what your body can handle. So I can't wait to share with everyone the amazing things and the new heights that you're taking yourself to, which doesn't surprise me at all, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, I love to start with asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. So as an Aussie household name you're an incredibly successful and probably quite intimidating high achiever so what is something that's really down to earth about you oh goodness there's so many things because I think I've got things where I am quite successful but I have so many other things that I'm completely hopeless at um <laughs> useless absolutely useless can't keep a, can't give a man in the house that's fun <laughs> <laughs> rarely have time to put makeup on because I don't I just don't have yeah I don't have time um socks under the bed often find bottles around the house that have been there for weeks because I didn't even know they were hidden from the children um <laughs> can't sing to save my life They're, you know it's 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 it goes on and on and on. But uh, I think the funniest one that I've often had is I rock up at a speaking gig and everyone says, oh, you know, how are you so organized? And I look down, I'm sitting on a stage with bright lights staring at me with the hairiest legs on the planet. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a funny funny moment a few weeks ago, but uh, so I just think in terms of that, I'm 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 highly flawed, and therefore I think that keeps me level headed because you, I realize I can't do everything. So I put my mind to certain things that I want to achieve in, and then I'm able to let the other parts go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, even having said that, though, you do give doing everything a red hot crack. <laughs> so, <laughs> but first, I, I so the first segment I always start with is called Way TA, which is pretty much just the story of how you got to now the position in your life where you are doing something you're super passionate about it it never happens overnight so can you take us back to the beginning and tell us how it all started so tell us about young yana and i know you grew up in western sydney but were you cool at school did you have a teenage (laughs) phase (laughs) no look i as we've already touched on a little bit already i was already very driven from a young age and that quite often alienates you as a little kid so i was the biggest nerd on the planet um (laughs) no seriously it can't probably get worse i look back at photos and think oh my god it's like and then you just try and protect your own children and and make sure they don't wear the hair that quite the way I did but anyway (laughs) Um, and the main reason for that was it wasn't that I didn't make friends easily is that I had so many things going on so right from the early primary school I wanted to be a doctor but I also wanted to do sport and if you want to take on both my parents were very very strict so therefore they said look Yana you can go and train and you can go and you know race around the country providing you do your homework so in every spare moment I had, including lunch times at school, I would go to the library and I would study so that my parents would allow me to train that night. Oh, my and gosh. I, that, yeah, I know. Like a complete dork. I told you I'm a nerd. <laughs> so, um, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was the one or the other. So like my parents, as I said, wouldn't allow me to, to have sport as a job unless they knew I had an afterlife to go to. Um, that's something they were already very aware of when I was growing up. I don't think they actually thought I was going to be any good at sport. That's the truth of it. I think they thought, oh, this is a pie-in-the-sky dream, so we better give her a fallback option. And then it's like, Oh, <laughs> little did they know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's how I sort of spent the younger years. Um, so it's quite interesting that you take, you know, almost go forward 30 years now, not quite, but, you know, 25 years, and I'm still doing the two things that I love. I run for fun, and now I do medicine for life. And before I sort of trained for life and studied on the side, but um, the two things have sort of been with me my whole life. I loved running and going to the track, I love being healthy, I love making friends at the track. Um, but I also just love the way it make you, makes you feel. And, you know, there's a lot of research going into, you know, sport and exercise being the next sort of antidepressant in terms of medication. And um, therefore, I just felt like I had a very happy childhood, lots of training, lots of outdoor activity and lots of good fresh air in Australia. And therefore, I had a very lovely early childhood leading into um, leading into sort of my early years of sport. So I think you said that yeah. you were nine years old when you first got into athletics. How, when did you sort of know that it would be a career? Oh, look, not until I was about 14. Um, it was pretty obvious when I was little that I'd win races quite easily. But as you probably remember from, I mean, Nick's probably talked about it too, is when you when the kids start training at around sort of 10 or 11, they get really, really good. And some of those other young athletes that parents don't let them train as much. And my parents, as I said, didn't let me train very much, especially sort of from about eight to 12. Those kids overtook me and I was left for dead for years. And then when my natural strength, and I'm a six foot tall woman and I got <laughs> about 13 I was almost there so <laughs> I'm a big unit I started overtaking them purely because I'm built like a man and it was it was something that you know I've got long legs and I run fast so with, even without training it wasn't um it was obvious that sport was going to be something I was going to be involved in um but around the 14 15 I started training full-time so so add the sort of physical talents of my parents gave me on top of hard work from the four to five out four to five days a week we were training and within 12 months I'd qualified for my first Olympics so (gasps) I was just very very lucky very very lucky I had um, a great coach um, good genetics from my parents and a desire to be good at it so I was very very lucky oh that's incredible and you ran your first Olympic games at just 17 which is insane how how was that what did that feel like being so young and like you you know looking back now you can probably appreciate a lot more than you could at the time of what just a crazy achievement that was well it's quite funny actually just just a side note I put this I put the bodysuit on from the Sydney Olympics the day before yesterday because I was doing this funny filming thing that I'm doing some tv stuff I'm doing amazing (laughs) how was I ever so small (laughs) but yeah um look it was a wonderful experience probably topped off because it was in my home country it was only 35 minutes from my house so the year and a half two years leading into it was all that hype around what the olympics was going to be so i grew up in that hype and then got to race in it so um and you know and even just i roomed next door to kathy freeman which was extraordinary and i mean she was rarely there but it was still pretty cool you know you were next door to the olympic champion and watched her race and i think it probably set the foundation for what for wanting to go to her level like you know i didn't quite get there in the end with not winning the olympics but i certainly got really close um but watching that experience and seeing 
the what the Olympic dream can become um, certainly set me on a pathway towards that. And in that in that respect, actually stopped my academic career for a while because obviously full time commitment into sport is very difficult to continue with other areas in life. Yeah. So how did that affect? You know, you mentioned just touched on it before. How did it affect your childhood and teenage years in terms of being so dedicated to it? In it. In a different way, you know, I was doing ballet. That was not nearly the same, but I missed out on a lot of, you know, the partying and like boys and like all of that kind of stuff. I don't think I missed out on the boys. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Um, No, but I was very disciplined. So, um, no, but partying, absolutely. So I didn't, we didn't, I had, as I said, I, I lacked the social life and therefore you don't actually develop the capacity to socialize as well as you probably could um, and I'm sure we'll get into it later but that I think therefore affected my ability to control how the media perceived me because I was very always wanting to make someone like me so I was always I didn't have a lot of friends and popularity was something I'd always craved and never really had mm. so it was something I chased I think in the, the later years and I, in saying that though I've never missed I don't like going out to nightclubs. I've never been someone to, who likes to go to a busy party. I'm far more someone with, a, you know, a, likes a barbecue around the house. You guys have been, you know, you've been, you've hung around me for years. So <laughs> relaxed lifestyle. I like going out to dinner, you know, Chinese and just relaxing rather than, than going out in the all, all night lifestyle. So it probably suited me down to a T. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do definitely want to come back to, um, you know, adjusting to being so, so in the media at such a young age and having to deal with the way that people can portray you. Definitely want to come back to that. We've got a segment called NATA, which is more the challenges along the way. But first, <laughs> first, I would love to just hear the rush of an international race. Like, can you take us through that blow by blow? Like, How does that actually feel? I can't imagine, you know, we went to the Sydney Olympics and got to watch, I don't think we were there at your race, but definitely got to watch from the stadium and feel the atmosphere in there. But I can't imagine how different that would feel being actually on the track and seeing the lights and, you know, what does that actually feel like? Does it feel long or short or, Uh, you know? Good question. It's funny because I use an episode, I've written a book and I use an extract out of this book that talks about this exact thing when I do a lot of speaking gigs. So because I I think it's a great um, entertainment to get people to feel what it feels like to win or race a world championship. So, but you're right. The first part of the day feels like it lasts for a month. Like it's so slow. Everything goes so slow. You're waiting around all day till the moment arrives that you leave to the track and then your warm-ups. So fast, like it's over and done within five seconds. It feels like it would have last, should last an hour or two, which it does, but it doesn't. And all of a sudden, you're standing in the call room, and everyone's nervous and everyone's jittery and sort of eyeing each other off. And then finally, they, you know, you go through multiple step stages where you, you get your bib numbers, you get your lane numbers, you get escorted to somewhere else. They check all your bags, and it feels like you're going through a mild, you know, a, a, you, when you go to the airport, and you're going through a security. It's quite intense, and then they let you out onto the track. So you're like this little single file line, and that's the moment that I think you really go, "Oh my God, I'm at the world." champs or the olympic games or the commonwealth games because that you can see the stadium is so full of lights and energy and people just yelling and screaming and flags everywhere it's very very noisy and your heart's going so fast you can almost hear it alongside the people in the crowd <laughs> yeah it's it's quite it's extraordinary like it's literally extraordinary and then you walk out to the blocks where I'm obviously at the start of the where the, where the finish line is because I run the full lap and you put all your stuff down and I think the time where your, your tummy really does a flip is when they pick up when that little person walks behind you and picks up the container with all your stuff and you're left standing there in the green and gold and all your tracksuits taken away and you're like oh my god it's d-day like it's literally oh my god i'm getting nervous just hearing you talk about it (laughs) you're at it and you know it's it's so then you're sort of standing there and you're you're so shaky like i don't know if people who have listening have done exams and you can barely write initially but you're so nervous your hands are shaking as they go down to onto the track when they sign your marks and that i wear sunglasses when i race and they kind of just bump a little bit on my nose because my whole body's adrenaline through my system is just literally shaking my body around and then they go through the whole crowd (laughs) like the starter does and the whole stadium which was all noisy and talking about the previous event goes deathly quiet and then it's just all eyes on you and then whatever country you're in they usually do the on your marks set and in in their language so it might be you know auf die pretze or vostri postri or (laughs) they have all these different languages so you just got to listen for the noise because it's obviously not on your marks I didn't know they did that in different languages. Yeah, wow. the Olympics sometimes the world champs will do different languages. The Olympics is often in English because it's, I guess, it's the Olympic Games. But most other big races are in that. That um, the first time it happened was my world juniors, and they said like they actually had to make us all stand up because none of us went into on your marks. <laughs> <laughs> bundle of words and I was like mm-hmm, okay anyway, sure yeah exactly and then you're in the set and then obviously the gun goes and then everything's a blur and because you've trained so hard it's autopilot so you just 
you might get a glimpse of someone you're running against because the 400 meters is obviously around 50 50 seconds long if mm. you're running the hurdles you might occasionally glimpse where one of the competitors is but you're you're on autopilot you're, you're you're running your own race um certainly coming into the home straight you might hear the crowd a little bit till that point all you hear is your own breathing and you and you and you're in your zone uh, and certainly off the last hurdle which is about 50 meters to go you hear everything you hear the crowd you hear everybody around you if you're losing you're like oh crap <laughs> so that becomes very aware and then obviously when you cross the line the whole stadium erupts if it's not you winning they're, they're you know they're clapping for someone else but the noise after the end of a race is extraordinary oh my gosh i've actually never heard it told blow by blow like that and I've, i'm actually feeling yeah. quite exhilarated just right now thinking about it <laughs> and i think that is one of the reasons why so many athletes find the feel that loss when they stop because there is there is nothing i mean I, I get close to it when i do an operation and particularly when we're doing when i get to scrub in to do cesareans and, and you get to birth babies and you actually see the outcome of the baby and the father crying and the mother like you know that's beautiful but it's still it's very hard to, i mean it's very hard to get close to that um big championship race performance yeah, of course. I think I can assume that athletes would spend a long time trying to chase that adrenaline feeling and they're not actually finding an equivalent in anything, really. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's just so many different things to different points of things you've done since then to follow up on. So obviously now context for the cesareans for everyone who's listening. Yana is now doing her medical degree, among many other things, obviously an incredibly high achieving individual. Um, and you're, you've also been doing charity work with the Australian Cervical Cancer Foundation, but also are somehow going to end up, we were just talking about this before we started recording, you're going to end up with like six degrees or something. So how how is that all working out? <laughs> um, I just, I already know, because I'm a bit older as, an, as a medical student, um, you know, most of the kids I go to uni with are like 18 and 19. So I'm very clear on the path that I want to go into. And I want to do gynecology and most likely um, gyne oncology. So working with women's cancer, like ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer. Hence my um, passion for my the ACCF, Australian Cervical Cancer Foundation, I work really heavily with now. But uh, so as a result, I've therefore had to maximize my opportunity to get into the obstetrics and gynecology college which is not an easy feat mm. you know they get a lot of applications every year and um, obviously you have to be a doctor but you have to also have a great resume and so therefore I'm doing a master's in reproductive medicine and then I've done research in cervical cancer and uterine transplant and things like that so and and to do that you may as well instead of just doing a piece of research you may as well do a degree so I've just added them up and now I'm going to have quite a few <laughs> I love how you just don't do anything halfway. And before we, I mean, before we even got to the medical career, which I loved hearing that that's been something on the horizon since you were young. And now you've finally been able to, you know, now athletics yeah. is kind of coming to a close. You've been able to move into that. But before that, you also fitted in the Winter Olympics yeah. <laughs> and were the first woman, I believe, to compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympics in the Bobsled Challenge. So tell us about that big change. How did that? pivot happen um to be honest i love athletics don't get me wrong but bob said was definitely the highlight of my sports career in terms of enjoyment um, really yeah because it was well firstly we were, there was no pressure we were never going to win let's be honest um <laughs> so that takes that sort of can of worms out of the out of the picture or out of play um and secondly doing it with someone else so actually it's a team event so if people um listening it's either a two-man or a four-man unfortunately women's don't do the four-man yet but that's a conversation for another day <laughs> yep <laughs> questions around that women women thing <laughs> but anyway so we do the two man or the two woman event um and the lady i was in who was in the sled with me was actually one of my first ever training partners in track and field when we were like 15 and 16 oh. so yeah it was a really lovely story she got the guts up to ring me never thought i'd say yes and i said yes straight away so so within sort of six months of that we spent four the next four years training together and then made the sochi winter olympics uh, she'd already been to two previous Olympic Games, so she was a great, really great pilot. She's the one who drives it. Uh, and she just needed a big, hefty woman on the back that could run fast. And so she's like, right, you're six foot tall, you weigh 75 kilos, and you can run a little bit. Give it a go. <laughs> so um, it was the tail end of my athletics career. Unfortunately, I'd got injured again leading, in leading into the 2012 London Olympic Games. So it was either hang up the boots completely and, and get up, you know, quit sport or, or find another avenue. And I was literally in the midst of trying a whole heap of other sports. So I was trying rowing, I tried boxing, I tried cycling. And then they're like, you know, why, why not bobsled? So I'm like, sweet. And within, within literally three months, I was in love. So that became that sport. Wow. That's such a cool story. I love how you were just like, no, screw it. Like I'm, I can do a winter Olympics, whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise it would have been rowing. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen rowers train, but they train harder than any athlete I've ever seen on the planet. So. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, that is actually one of the things I wanted to ask about is, you know, in both Summer and Winter Olympics, at that level, it looks to me, I mean, obviously from the outside, you have an incredible string of high achievements. So two-time world champion, four-times Commonwealth champion, Winter Olympics, and obviously now a medical degree. But from the outside to us commoners, that all looks very glamorous. And you see, you know, all the amazing stuff of you guys in the green and gold and, you know, standing on the blocks. But I've heard from Nick that there are some seriously grueling parts of training behind the scenes, oh, um, like really. training till you spew all the time. Oh, really? like, still do, even though I'm not, I'm not even a ruddy athlete anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know whether that's ever going to go away. But, yeah, it's hard. They're, but, it, look, it is very glamorous too, though. I mean, I look back on it and I don't think at the time you realise how lucky you are. Like you're just sort of going through the motions and you don't really know any different. But when you're at the other end and you look back on what the things you did do and the experiences you had, it was extremely glamorous and amazing and wonderful and well worth, as Nick says, the vomit sessions. And <laughs> um, But for me, the hardest part, and it's been quite publicly known, was the injuries. I mean, they were literally heartbreaking. And for me, they always happened right before a big championship. So, you know, I could have won every race there was in the world and then I'd break something right before the Olympics. And it happened three Olympics in a row, two world championships, one Commonwealth Games. Like it was I I won – I never won a silver medal. They were always gold if I got there or I was injured. Like there was no sort of happy medium for me. And I think it would have just been really nice to have a, have a, a couple more years where you didn't have the injuries and maybe not, didn't win either, but also just sort of run, ran at that, that elite level just because you got to enjoy it. Yeah. And without, yeah. And being able to see your true potential not affected by yeah, kind yeah. of some recovery. Yeah. Uh, but also in between, I mean, you are literally the first guest that I've actually really struggled in jumping around in so many different places because there are so many amazing things that you're doing. Oh. And so, no, it's amazing. And so in between all of that, and I think it was um, just after you, no, just before you won your second world title. And I think there was a knee injury around that time you've became a mother as well and are now a mother of three so you won your second title world title just eight months after Cor was born your first child so tell us about adding children to the mix um that was my third goal so my, my literally I had three goals in life and one of them was to win the Olympics which didn't quite happen the second one was to have get married and have kids and the third one was um was to, to become a doctor so Cornelis was always going to be on the cards um my husband at the time we're divorced now obviously but um at the time he was keen for kids too and we had a great window uh where there was no championships because the Australian Commonwealth Games are in March and the following world chance weren't till September mm. we had that window to sort of fit that in and um I thought it would take a long time and it didn't so therefore a little man <laughs> arrived and <laughs> he was a real leveler so uh it was he's, he's been a he's been a beautiful asset to my life and and really gave you the perspective that you needed to continue with sport and just realize that there's a lot bigger than just what you were doing um and then you know we, we unfortunately then got divorced and and I still wanted to have more kids as I said it was something I'd always wanted so along came the girls oh how old are they now uh Emily's now well she turns four next year or early next year and then Jemima turns one in January so they're one and three at the moment but they're getting they're getting bigger Oh my gosh, Han- handful just yeah. in itself being a mum of three, let alone everything else that you're doing. And then how did you figure out how to write a book in between all that? I did that in the year. I had what, So every time I have a baby, I have a year off medical school, which is why it's taken me seven years to finish medicine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so because I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a very passionate mother and I really believe that, uh, that you give as much time as you can. They become, that, you know, the time you give them never comes back. Yes. Or if- miss the time you can't get it back um so I took a year off with both girls and in between but when I say I take a year off as I said I wrote the book in <laughs> years off. so one year I wrote the book the other year I finished a research degree but it, because you're at home you can spend that time around there sleeping so I'm a big believer in that if you want to do something you just maximize the time that you've got around your family and and you know keep your priorities where they are and just fit the rest of it around that so um, that those years my kids were my priorities but I did still want to do something academic and and I've been wanting to write a book for many many years because it's a bit of a way to tell your own story a bit of a way to sort of be cathartic in some ways and and it gave me a lot of perspective to realize actually I did have a pretty extra, extraordinary career and I'm not I don't think I was actually quite aware of how good it was until I actually wrote it down mm, mm. I think that's the struggle with a lot of people who are achieving so many things and and doing it in such quick succession as well you don't actually stop and appreciate all the things you've done until you look back and you're like wow yeah that wasn't half bad <laughs> yeah my bio is pretty impressive <laughs> and so looking back on that it would be so hard to choose but 
what are some of the things you're most proud of? Are there any real like highlight moments along the way where you just pinched yourself and and felt successful? Oh, I had one yesterday, but it's a bit, it's, it's a little bit too arrogant, so I'm not going to share it. Oh no, I want to hear it. <laughs> my highlight of my life, to be honest. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, in sport. Um, definitely my first ever Commonwealth Games was huge back in the day, like way, way, way back in 2002, wasn't expected, just came out and, you know, I was only 19 and, and won the Commonwealth Games. I was like, oh my God, I, I cannot believe that just happened. <laughs> that was That's so cool. Uh, obviously world titles and everything was, was massive, but I think the first time I got to race Kathy Freeman was, was a massive highlight to be standing next to her. And then a couple, you know, a couple of years ago, I had to actually slip just in front of her in a 400, which was off insane. the chart. Yeah, exactly. Insane. It was just ridiculous <laughs> in my heart. And then Bob said, standing on the top of that, top of that ice at the Winter Olympics in Sochi after all those injuries in track and field and to be, but what I was proud of there wasn't that we were making, like we, we came 12th or 13th. I can't actually even remember what we came at the Olympics, which is terrible, but it shows how little the actual performance mattered. It was more about the experience. Um, was standing at the top of that ice with my, one of my closest friends and thinking, wow, we did this on this tiny little budget. Um, and we're top 15 in the world. And, 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 and what I was proud of was that I was enjoying the moment. There was no, stress it was just look at this look what a little Aussie team can do and how exciting it was so that was definitely a highlight from sport it must be so different to see both sides like the intense elite athlete I need to get gold and then doing something for the joy of just the joy of it it must have been such a different experience don't get me wrong because Astrid wanted to, to get top top 14 like she was she was very 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 intense about it we were we, we trained like there was no there was no there, I don't want to make it out like it was just fun. We trained. I've never trained as hard. I actually trained harder in bobsled than some of my track days. Like we, we, we were in the gym five times a week for three or four hours a day. And I ended up power cleaning 110 kilos, which is oh. more than I did in track and field. So um, it was really intense, but it was just, I don't know. It was, do you know what? I think the enjoyment didn't come from the lack of performance. We trained and we just, we, we played very hard. Mm. It was from the fact that I was getting a second chance. It was like a reinvention. So I, I thought all sport was over and then all of a sudden I felt like someone handed me this amazing opportunity on a platter and therefore I was determined to enjoy it and that's why it is, is such a highlight. And it yeah. actually, like if you think about it, who doesn't want to go 140 kilometres an hour on ice? Like it's actually <laughs> – <laughs> Yeah. So you just mentioned reinvention. I think that's one of the coolest things about you is that you have been able to reinvent yourself in a much more creative and, and still very, very high achieving way than a lot of elite athletes because it is so hard to find a new environment for that energy and, and you know, trying to find the same, you know, just finding yourself in a new environment. Yeah. And so that leads me to our, our next segment, which is NATA, and your book is called Just Another Hurdle, which I think is hilarious, <laughs> but also really apt to describe the fact that in between all the highs, there have been, there's been so much injury, there's been so much media. Um, how, what have some of your biggest challenges been and how have you, you, you seem like you've built so much resilience and if there's any word that I think of when I think of Yana, I think of strong. Yeah. Like you're just the, one of the strongest physically but also emotionally strongest people that I, I know. And it's how do you cultivate that through, you know, injury after injury? How do you deal with those setbacks? Um, honestly, it's being kind to yourself. So it's the opposite of strength in some in some avenues. And, you know, it's actually been I was it's been in the media recently so I can talk about it quite openly. But I had an eating disorder for quite a large part of my, portion of my athletics career and I'm now one of the um, ambassadors for Inside Out Institute, which is trying to raise awareness and research and evidence-based medicine for, for people going through similar experiences. And mm. um, so I'm certainly – I'm very strong and resilient now, but there were definitely times where I was falling off the wagon multiple times in a row. And I think it's just continually getting through those days. And, you know, you get very close to breaking many times in sport in anything. Like it doesn't, doesn't, you don't have to be an elite athlete or a doctor. Every one of us goes through times in our lives where it's just too tough and it's hard. And, you know, I, it's, this is a very difficult topic to talk about, but, you know, I've lost a three or four close actually more than that, five close friends to suicide because they couldn't cope with what they were going through at the time. Oh. And you just think, what's the difference between that person and me? And you just, and it is resilience. It's the ability to be grateful for the genetics that I have because of a lot of it comes from, you know, um, the way we're wired, um, but also having confidence that the future is brighter than the day before. And, and in terms of injuries, a lot of it was perspective. So I often engaged in charity and 
working with people who were more or less fortunate than I was because it gave me the ability to go, oh, come on, Yana, wake up. Your, your life's just not that bad. Mm. And it's hard to do sometimes because, you know, it's our life and it's our, it's our everything. It's everything we do every day. But I needed a few of those wake-up calls along the way because I definitely got a bit caught up in my own dramas, which is <laughs> ironic with the yarn drama and all that sort of stuff. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so it was just for me, yes, I'm very resilient because I just think, well, if something fails, doesn't matter, we all fail and move on. So I think it's not that I'm strong. It's just that I'm okay with dealing with lots and lots of failure. And I don't know why that is. I just, maybe because a lot of it happens. And I think in sport we get, we fail so often. We lose so many races. You know, I failed getting into, getting into medicine the first time. I've had multiple relationship failures. My marriage has failed. I had eating issues. So I've got lots of mental health stuff you could sort of say. It's just that in the end, I just allow myself to be imperfect and once you realize that you're you don't have to be superhuman all of a sudden you become a little more in that direction and start achieving things because you let go of some of the hang-ups absolutely and i think the more times that you do go through that process the better you get at it it's when you're scared of failing and can't let yourself go that far it is and i think a lot of us are scared of failing and i i think the big thing for me sarah is i failed publicly on so many levels like even even me as a person was judged publicly. So in that respect, it's, I, I failed on a, on a social level. So I think it's one of those things where, yeah, you just keep going through it. And because I've had so many of them and I've survived them all, it's like, well, okay, not much is going to break me because everything's tried and it didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's not much left. <laughs> and I think the other big thing is finding something, finding things you're genuinely in love with because then when you have things fail around you, you just turn to those things that you love. Um, and as I said, for me, that is medicine, um, it's music, and it's also my children, my, my girls, and I mean my son as well, but he's getting older. My girls are very reliant on me and little, um, and I break lots of rules with them. I let them co-sleep with me, and we snuggled way too much, and they get <laughs> but they're the little levelers that I think sometimes you need. And, yeah, it's I think once you do, I think, with time and different milestones in your life and moving out of an environment gives you a lot more perspective on, on looking back at things. True. But I do know the media was a really, really big part of your career and um, from a very, very young age as well, being in the public eye, it just creates so much pressure for anyone at any age in any industry, let alone somewhere where your success is defined by winning and winning only, but also you were you know, an Aussie icon but then also so heavily criticised and judged all the time because that's what Australians do when people are in the media and are successful at a very young age. How how was that for you? What did that feel like? Like, oh, look, a bit of both. Um, I'm, I'm I'm very happy and lucky to say that probably the last oh, six to eight years I've had really positive press. I don't really get a lot of the negative stuff anymore. I still get asked about it a lot, and a lot of people sort of say, you know, oh, it was you, you know, you're so much so different from what we thought you'd be when I do public. <laughs> And things like that because they remember some of the media that was there. So I'm very grateful to the change of the tide in that respect because it's certainly lovely to, you know, see positive and, and nice stories about yourself and family. But there were definitely some years there where it was heartbreaking to see because I wouldn't say that it was, I mean, I, I generated an, a large portion of it because I was so young and so innocently honest and therefore um, I would wear my heart on my sleeve and that would be just literally like, you know, kindling to a fire for a journalist so it was it was it was difficult to know what you could and couldn't say and it took a number of years in the media before I realized what you what how Australians like to be addressed and what sort of things are appropriate to say in the public setting um and by then obviously the, the stuff's already printed in the past so you can't sort of withdraw it but um yeah, there were definitely times where it was very, very difficult and uh, and I think I was misrepresented in on a few occasions, again, because let's be honest, the, the negative drama stories are more exciting to read. I like reading like Women's Day and <laughs> drama that goes on in the world and we find it entertaining and it gives us an opportunity to look at our own lives and think, oh, we're not bad. And so I, I don't... I don't have any regrets about it. I just, in some ways, it's a bizarre thing to say. I actually wish social media was around at the time because then what it would have allowed, because I'm very, I don't have a mean bone in my body. I would never in, intentionally hurt anybody in the press or, so I, I don't think I'd get myself into trouble with regards to writing mean tweets about someone. Like it's just not something I, I, I just can't do it. I don't, I'm not like that. Mm. But what it would have given me was an opportunity to address people directly. So, you know, say if something, say, say I stuffed up, I could apologize via Facebook on online to everyone or you could share some of the nice positive stories you're doing like I do now around cervical cancer and awareness around different women's health problems and eating disorders and stuff like that so you could show your own side and perspective whereas when I started there was no Facebook and there was no Twitter or Instagram to sort of share your side of that story and it was only what the media portrayed that was you know 
that was out there. Yeah, Nick and I have actually spoken about that a couple of times that you were 17 years old. Like if there were cameras yeah. following me around when I was 17 years old, there's no way I'd like not have a completely ruined reputation and like <laughs> especially with no chance, yeah, to even answer to that and like correct the the misconceptions. Um but I'm so pleased to hear that obviously it's it's turned around and you're back to being Australia's golden girl, which is amazing. <laughs> Um, but I, I didn't actually know about the eating disorder, but it's, I think, something that is rife in society oh, still. Unbelievably. And it's a million people in this country. Over a million people in Australia are suffering with some form of eating disorder, which I wasn't even aware of till I started doing some research with the foundation and I'm um, sorry, with the Institute. So it's extraordinary how many people, because it's not like something you can just switch off. We all have to eat and, um, and we all have problems with control in our lives and particularly with images and body images out there. It's like, it's, it's a difficult thing to conquer. And do you think that that was like, there was a lot of comparison or self doubt or like self worth? kind of tied up in that or, or yeah because it definitely got worse when that media sort of storm hit me I definitely went internal and and but for, look sport ballet you know you know that yourself that it's 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 an environment where you're critically judged on your appearance and your weight mm. we're always getting skin folds we're always being told to get on the scales we're always being told if you just lose that little bit more your performance will be better and I grew up with lots of friends with eating disorders as well around me, all around me, many people in sport and outside of sport. Actually, majority, the, my closest friends that were involved weren't even in sport. They were in ballet or something else. Mm. Um, and therefore I saw avenues of weight loss. So initially it was just a scenario of, well, let's maintain our low weight and still be able to eat chocolate at the same time. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, eat cake and eat it, literally. Um, and that spiralled out of control as it became emotional, as it became, well, I'm sad, I want to eat chocolate and cake and everything else. And I'm like, oh, no, I feel really guilty about that. So um, whereas obviously going into bobsled, it was sort of the end of that era for me because all of a sudden it was like, Yana, you're too thin. And you're like, what do you mean I'm too thin? Yeah, like, oh, I look great. <laughs> I remember having my skin folds done and I'd been doing bobsled for two years and coming out and they're going, your skin folds just too low like you're just too low you're too <laughs> and I'm like yay oh my God. <laughs> but so it was a big change of an era and then obviously going into medicine it doesn't matter what size I am as long as I can operate well so it's like <laughs> um I, I'm aware that mine was definitely tied up a lot in in my in my self-image and performance and, and emotion around sport but it's it's something we need to make sure people are aware of because it's not just limited to, to, to people with sport it is a real control mechanism um and and we are all tied up in, in image and what we look like when we're trying to meet a, hus a husband or a wife and, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. I think it's also a lot harder when you do have sport or ballet or something that's, you know, seen as a legitimate, like a, a great thing for you to be dedicated to your career is that you can use that to mask it. So it's kind of it kind of develops as a good thing. Like I'm disciplined, I'm really like doing these things that are going to enhance my performance, I'm eating well, and then that's where you don't realise you're slipping into something dangerous because it starts off as a really healthy thing. Absolutely. And people, I mean, and people outside athletics, I don't think they'd even know what, what skin folds are. Can, can you explain what those kind of tests Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so your skin folds are basically where they grab every little bit of your fat all over your body in seven different places, so on your tummy, on your back, your arm, your bicep, your tricep, your legs and your calf, and then they measure <laughs> measure the centimetres and go, right, you have 35 millimetres of fat. <laughs> so in bobsled I need to have over 55 and in track and field you need to be under 40 so um oh. millimeters and so nick and remember we he and i he, he had to do them all with me he always got me into so much trouble too because he was so skinny and i was always chunky it was not <laughs> <laughs> he always tells the story about how you had to keep a food diary yeah. and if it was if you, you ordered the food for him like if you wanted a cake or something you'd be yeah. like oh nick get a cake he'd be like i don't <laughs> eat cake you'd be like no no no, get a cake and if it was on his like he ordered it even if you ate it it didn't count for your food <laughs> diary yeah so although we had another story with nick which definitely was not me like i was on a really strict food diary like really really strict and he went out and ate all these chocolates and left the car wrappers in the back of the car <laughs> and our coach at the time came storming into the track like you've never seen it screaming his head off at me going the only reason you're gonna lose the olympics is because you're gonna eat too much shit you gotta take this seriously and i'm like they're not mine they're not <laughs> And, it, then, and, and, and and this guy's like, they're not Nick's, don't lie to me. And I'm like, I promise you they're not mine. <laughs> giving Nick death stares because I'm like, those bloody chocolate bars. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, God, those skin folds test. He still 
sometimes tries to do them on himself. And really? I just think, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what he's like. <laughs> but, but I still sometimes yeah. think, you know, that especially, I mean, it's hard enough for young women anyway, let alone if you're having, in, you're in an environment where your profession relies on you doing those kinds of tests. Yeah. That's brutal. It is brutal. Like that's so crazy. It is brutal. And it's very, as I said, it's very common and we just need to, we need to get the message out there to young athletes and women in general and men. Sorry, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. There's, there's actually quite a big problem with young teenage boys at the moment. Actually, it's coming out in the research. But, um, the, but the, the issue we need to get out there is that skinny is not healthy, and particularly in sport, it's not performance related. Like, in, in actually, not even just sport, it's medicine as well. Like, I even find now when I go on a diet, I can't concentrate on my study as well, and I'm not as effective a doctor. Mm. So, I, it's about being healthy. And interestingly, when I won the world champs in 2007, eight months post. My birth of my son, I was not skinny at all. My skin folds were well over 40, but I won the world champs. And then as a junior athlete, world juniors, Commonwealth Games, all of those early years in sport, again, my skin folds would have been 44, 46, and I was great. And then I dropped them down to 38, 36, and I get injured. It was, it was a really interesting sort of story. And we've got to get that message out there that, that what you look like does not correlate with how good you are at whatever you're doing. Mm, absolutely. I think there's slowly, slowly an increasing move towards strength rather than visual. It's like internal strength. Cool. And I mean, I've even I've started to play around with that more, doing a lot more weights and resistance training and have noticed even though, yeah, there are physical changes going on. I've put on weight in terms of kilograms. You've got but- extraordinary body though. You look incredible. Oh. So, if I look oh. I would never had an eating disorder. Oh, that's very kind of you but I'm a 12 year old boy that looks you know like I've got no curves no boobs I just go straight up and down but I've noticed that you know in doing strength training that I'm actually way more productive mentally like creatively because I'm I'm stronger and it's I never would have thought that there was that kind of connection yeah very very true and so now that you've got three children a medical career you're still training obviously you've just come from the track and I imagine with all the public speaking you're you're traveling as well quite a bit do you ever get burnt out like how have you managed yep. over the time of your career having so much on your plate all the time? Uh, burnout regularly. And um, <laughs> yeah, I've got it. And that's the thing. Like most people you'll talk to who are successful go, oh, I don't burn out. It's all about balance. Give a busy job to a busy person and get it done. I'm like, bullshit. Sorry about swearing. but <laughs> Oh, no, they're my favorite answers. Okay. I'm like, you're, you're setting this unrealistic bar for women who just can't do that. Regularly. Like it's once a month, <laughs> even probably more. Sometimes it's once a week. Right? Lately it's been daily. It's quite funny. But um, And I think, but as I said, the, the thing is being honest with yourself. Like it's some. Like yesterday I had this massive plan. I had, I'd worked all morning. Um, I had, I've done, I've done six, six TV episodes in the last week, like six different TV gigs. I filmed a couple of documentary pieces. I've been trying to study and Christmas shopping. So the plan yesterday was to go Christmas shopping all afternoon. And I'm like, I just can't, like, I'm absolutely exhausted. So instead of pushing myself to do it, I just said no. And that's something I think a lot of us don't do. We just don't say no when something is too much. Mm. So, and if you're going to be successful, you cannot be burning out on all different levels. So when I say burnout, I never get to that point. I actually just get to the point where I'm stuffed, I'm done. Yeah. And then I say no and I go home and I stop and I watch television for three or four hours, sometimes back-to-back Netflix movies <laughs> and then come out the other end and I feel great. So it's one of those I don't let myself ever get too exhausted. I actually break a little earlier and allow it to break, whereas in the past what I think I did, and it's one of the reasons I think I used to get so injured, is I just go, 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 go. You should stop, but I'm just not going to. I'm just going to keep going and done, out. Yeah. So it's one of my key things, and I try really hard to share it with a lot of successful anybody really, is to allow yourself to have those times when as soon as you feel – I kind of liken it to pregnancy. So when you're pregnant and you're training or doing sport or doing anything, you for some reason, when that baby's in your belly, you're like, I'll prioritize it. So when you get tired, you have a sleep. But why don't we do that with our own bodies? Why don't we prioritize ourselves as well? So it's it's just allowing it. I never allocate in, like I don't force myself. I just basically say when it, when I need it, I take it. And that is and that is something that I think is really essential for us to do is one, accept that we're going to, if you're going to fill your life with lots of things and you're going to at sometimes break and it's okay to break, you don't have to hide it and you don't have to try and block it away and actually let it happen on that day and you'll find give in to yourself for a few hours and then you'll come out the other day and you'll be three times as productive as you would have been had have you done it have you had have you tried to do it all in one afternoon yeah absolutely I, I've increasingly realized that all our best ideas or breakthroughs or new businesses have always come out of taking a break yep agreed you always come back with fresh perspective and fresh energy and when you're just burning the candle at both ends you just don't get anything done it doesn't do anyone a favor that's right the big one is I actually took a year off exercise because I was getting really deep into medicine and I did, um, it's funny because I go and I talk to a lot of schools about kids in year 12 maintaining their exercise because a lot of kids get to their HSC year and they're like nah 
might, the parents say, nope, that's it, your sport's over, you've got to concentrate on, on your academics. And it was interesting because in the in my second year of medicine, I was training full-time for the Sochi Olympic, Olympics and I made the Olympics and came second in my year in med school. And I'm like, how, <laughs> how have I done that? Like it's ridiculous. How have you maintained such high marks and also trained full-time? So the following year I'm like, that's it. I'm not going to train anymore. I'm going to concentrate on medicine and really, really knuckle down. And I went worse. And I was like, what the? How does that <laughs> it's ridiculous. So I've realized that mental health is so highly, you know, it, um, sorry, other way around. Exercise is so highly connected with good positive mental health. So trying to fit in that exercise around, which sounds ridiculous. You're going to add another thing into your diary. But um, I've just really realized how much of the endorphins and adrenaline make a difference to your energy. Yeah, there's actually a lot of scientific evidence now out about that. And I've noticed, you know, in the past couple of years, I had quite bad anxiety start to emerge because I was just pushing it too far, not necessarily even physically, just emotionally. And once I brought exercise, even gentle exercise, even walking for half an hour a day, it just keeps it at bay. There's something about like regulating your heart rate and giving your brain a a rest. Yeah. So I'm back training full time. (laughs) Yeah. What what does full time training mean for you though? I mean, I I train every day, once a day. That's it. (laughs) And running or? Most of the time. Yeah. I'm back running at the track. Oh, wow. For anything. I'm not going to race or maybe like some old ladies races but but no not competitively I just really I love the wind in your hair I love the lanes I just love the atmosphere I just love it it's just so yeah and so you just got your own programs and you just kind of go for it yeah don't even have a program I rock up and I go what do I feel like today do I feel like vomiting or do I feel like sprinting (laughs) (laughs) and then what about food and you know sleep how many hours do you get of sleep a night how do you kind of keep healthy don't know. I don't calculate. I go to bed when I'm tired and I get up when the kids come in. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. Sometimes two hours, sometimes 10. Who knows? So I guess with three, you've got to just kind of go with what you can get. Exactly. <laughs> the girls sleep with me, as I said, every night. So they come in. Jemima, the tiny one, she's the one-year-old. She comes in. She goes to bed in her own bed and then comes in to me by about 10. Oh, <laughs> so that's so sweet. And Emily comes in about one o'clock in the morning. So, um, And then they, they wake up anywhere between four and six so, you know, the two of us, the three of us get up and do our thing. Um, nutrition, look, you know, I have been involved in the isogenic stuff. I think you know that. So mm-hmm. for many years, I, I still really believe in their shakes and their cleanse. So I have that every day. But other than that, I'm just relaxed. I can't, I can't, I, I can't put more energy into that. So, and that's another thing. You've got to put the energy where you need it. And diet for me is just not something I worry about because I exercise so much. I just don't care. Mm. I just eat healthy where I can and, um, and go for it. I think it's just such a good role model for people just giving themselves permission to just care less and yeah, do it and just kind of wing it. <laughs> when you honestly, I have I, my care factors are so low these days. It's so, <laughs> so I do obviously my, I care about being a good parent. I care about my medical marks and my friends, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, what about relationships? Is it like where is the time left over for that? There, you make time. So I mean, a lot of my I have friends that are very similar to me look like you guys like you know I've caught up with you once in two years I think and 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 you make time <laughs> for the people you care about and then the people that the people that fill the rest of your life are people like you guys where you still love them just as much but mm-hmm. you don't hang out very much but if you catch up it's back like you've never you know like a conversation I'm having with you now like, I wouldn't talk like this with someone I don't know mm. so I, mean, I know you're sharing with others but it, the, the benefit is that I I, I trust you so uh, even wifey you guys know her she's a very Kate good friend of us down in Melbourne yeah we see each other once every year but she's my best mate so I have about six or seven really, really close friends. I'm very, very lucky and we're all very successful but also really kind, generous people and as a result you don't always see each other all the time but you, when, when that person needs you, you make that time. Yeah, totally. I think I always say you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with and you have to look at that, that those five people often and check whether you're happy that, with that reflection and yeah. if they're the kind of people that are really needy and they need so much FaceTime, that's probably not going to be a workable relationship when they don't understand very kind of what, what's going on in your life. Point. Because none of my, I have no needy friends at all, none. And you couldn't maintain it anyway because it would just cause you a lot of anxiety and them. You're really, actually, you're right, you know, you've got to, I think about if I had a friend like that, they wouldn't get enough from me because I am not like that. So therefore, you're right, that it would actually be them that gets affected more than me and that and that's not fair on them either that uh, that they require that. But, you know, I sp- put it this way though as well though, I spend a lot of time travelling. So in the car I ring a friend every day. So mm. every day I'll speak to one of my one of my six closest friends. And so I speak to them all the time on the phone. I just don't see them face to face very often. Yeah, I've learned as well, especially where, you know, everyone's living everywhere. There are ways to maintain a close relationship that really don't need FaceTime. And it's kind of like almost like with clients or with work, half the time I'm like, we did not need to have a meeting. That could have been done in an email. Yeah. That's kind of like how you get with your friends. Yeah, and it's sad. And look, don't get me wrong, when my when my medical degree is finished, that is one of the things I want to prioritize. I want to see 
some of my closer friends more regularly for coffee and stuff. But, and like at the moment, I tend to hang out with people who have kids. So we, we, I have a lot of friends from, would you believe it, from school. So yesterday I went out with my four or five closest friends from school back in Benny's days from Sydney. Wow. Yeah, we've all got kids the same age. So that's what we do. We catch up probably once a month and just sit down. All the kids play, we play and we don't play. Obviously we sit and chat and eat coffee and eat <laughs> cake, but um, the kids play and, and that's the kind of thing. So your life changes as your as you develop different relationships. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. So play brings me to our last segment, which is called play TA. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think we all talk about what we do so much. There's so much emphasis these days on our output and our achievements and our goals. And it's not very much connected to whether that makes us happy or whether we get fulfilled. And I think you're obviously quite out of the box in that you've had your three goals of what, what lights you up and what you're passionate about. And your life has very much unfolded towards those three things. But not everyone's like that and not everyone actually asks themselves if what they're doing makes them happy. So I don't really need to ask you, but do you get happiness from your job? And mm. if there were no money or time constraints in the world, is this what you'd be doing? And there isn't any. I haven't been paid for seven years in medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm broke. <laughs> but but worth it. There's another humbling moment. I'm selling my house so I can't afford to stay here anymore. So it's one of those things that yeah. – I don't, you know, I, I often get asked this a lot, like, am I on purpose? You know, I, a guy asked me, I did a speaking gig this week and that was a great question because do you feel like your life is on purpose? And I, I often sit down and question myself saying, am I doing this for me or am I doing it for external gratification? And it's a big question that I sometimes don't always, I, I grapple with a lot as whether I'm answering it well enough because some, you know, especially with the goals that I've picked, like medicine is very externally uh, like there's a lot of ego associated to it, if you know what I mean, and sport. Mm. And, I, and I'm honest, I, I believe that there's probably a bit of both. And I think one of the things is I'm okay with it being a bit of both because um, it makes me feel good. Mm. So whether I'm achieving in if – if achievement for me is something that drives me then, then, I'm, then and that makes me feel satisfied and happy at times, then, I'm a, then I have to just accept that I am a little bit driven in that direction. But the flip side of that is I genuinely love – medicine so I'm 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 going rural for my internship which is obviously the complete opposite I'm not going to get the accolades and that out in a rural setting but I feel like I've got a lot more to give out there for a few years mm. um, I love you know third world countries and going over there and doing women's health over there an area where it's very underprivileged and poor there's no money in that either so I realize that a lot of it's it's a really interesting combination of both and I think again once I'm honest with myself and say it's okay that some of the accolades that come along with it I like I'm I enjoy them I like my debt no I got my marks that's what I said the other day. I got my marks back yesterday for medicine this year and they were much higher than I was expecting and I drove around to my parents house and my dad cried oh. like that for me yes it's external but to see the joy in his face and all the hard labor I mean that man took himself from nothing and has supported me through medical school and looked after my kids for many many days with my mum and to see the joy in their face when they saw that they were getting rewarded with someone's marks was was truly so inspiring for me to continue those that level of you know of academic excellence. So mm. I just think it's got to be okay, if, no matter what your purpose is. If if you love what you're doing and it helps others in in and and makes you feel good and look good, then I think that's something you just need to accept. Yeah, completely. I'm very very similar to you in that regard, and I do often have to question whether I'm going after achievement for the sake of yeah achievement or, or 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 because I think that's my purpose or because I don't feel validated if I'm not. Yeah. you know achieving or, or producing and it, it's a it's hard, hard thing to... to know it's hard to know um but I and I've really as I said grappled with that this year but I genuinely feel like medicine has because it's also been my calling since I was five like I literally remember carrying my <laughs> this is long before I was ever a well-known person I carried I found we went to this garage sale in the middle of nowhere and I found like you know those like old Doctor Who kind of bags that he carries around and I found them <laughs> yes. and I was like, oh my god and then I made like a stethoscope out of like a plate and some string and you know, <laughs> plates and and I you know I fed my poor brother all sorts of weird concoctions that I'd made up as a little chemist and poor kid got sick at least three times <laughs> in I think it was like you know cordial that was un um un, was concentrated cordial or something horrible <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is it's something I've always loved and always wanted sport was secondary I never wanted to be an athlete it was again it was my parents joy seeing that success was very um, and was something that driv drove me because my dad would take a day off work to come and uh, take me to an athletics carnival and I really craved him, so his attention. So I think, yeah, I think what you're doing with your own thoughts around it too is is is, is perfect, but it's also okay for us to, to be okay with success. And sometimes, especially in Australia, a lot of people feel like you can't celebrate your own success because it's the we want to be humble, we want to be seen as being humble, we want to be seen as being, you know, a positive role model for people in that way. But 
we also need people that aren't coat hangers. We all can't hang on the same rack. We do need a few that stand out above the others because otherwise, you know, we don't have our, what are we going to aspire to as children? Like I loved looking up to my granddad who was extraordinary when I was a kid. And I met Scott Morrison, the prime minister the other day. And I thought, wow, what a great job. That mom made me want to do that one day. Like, <laughs> I think as long as you're doing something that's positive for the world and you enjoy it, then I think it's a good thing. Absolutely. And I think, I do think a big part of that is just accepting what it is that makes you happy and that if that is achievement, that that's fine and you don't have to play it down and not celebrate your wins just because, exactly. yeah, I think we, we do have a big tall poppy syndrome going on in Australia sometimes. And I really think it's changing. I don't know whether you've noticed that, but I think recently it, in the last couple of years with a lot of the, a, bit, a lot of social media and things where people are actually putting out how things that they're doing well at. Mm. And also even, I know it's bizarre to put this in the same category, but a lot of the, the TV shows we do now, like Survivor and all of them, they're all about competition and success and people winning um and even just a lot of the reality tv shows so people aren't it's not as it's not as bad these days to put yourself out there as a public person whereas in the past it was all about you know let's be humble and really you know quiet about our success <laughs> i still think that's the way to go like if there's someone young who listens to your show and, and is about to become successful i think you're far better off coming from behind and, and being humble but it I just also think that if you're if you love something that you're doing, just let that performance speak for itself. Yeah, totally. Maybe afraid of it just because you're good at something. Yeah, and so with this whole concept of being defined by by our achievements and our and our work, I love that you just said before. You know, I often hear people talk about work life balance, and it just puts so much pressure on us all to think that there's this elusive balance that most of the time, realistically, it's not actually possible or necessarily something we enjoy. Some people don't need as much downtime as others, but I've had to work really hard recently on separating a part of myself from my achievements and finding a part of me just to manage my anxiety alone, um, yeah. but also for other reasons, finding a part of me that is able to find joy in things that aren't work-related. Like I've yeah. really had to go and find, I'm, I'm sure in motherhood that's a lot easier because you have children which do kind of make you live in the moment because their needs are so immediate. But are there any other things that you find a lot of joy from like that aren't related to, you know, any kind of achievement or learning? Like I garden I cook I do all these random puzzles and board games and stuff like that what do you do for that uh, look, for your I joy I totally agree with you and and it's only been probably the last year or so and again as soon as, as soon as I start doing these things I find you actually have more time for life and for busyness anyway so I agree I don't I don't have a work-life balance I feel like I've got a great work-life balance but when I talk about it to other people they're like there's no balance in that and I'm like well it feels balanced to me so I'm okay with it <laughs> And bush for me. So we regularly, the kids and I, and it's always with the children, as you said, but we regularly go for bush walks. I think getting back to nature is extremely important. We go to the beach a lot. We do a lot of just stuff as a family. We go on weekend trips. Whenever we have a day off, we go and explore somewhere in New South Wales, you know, up to the mountains or out to the, out to, um, you know, a rock formation. We've been to Janolan Caves regularly, that kind of thing. So, and I think having that time where, and we don't take our phones, you just literally ought to take photos occasionally, but we don't answer our phones. You just literally have, that time with your family one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And I like you, I love puzzles. I can't read anymore. It's actually a bit sad. I used to absolutely love reading, but I can't read a book anymore because I feel guilty I should be reading a textbook. Oh, uh, so Lord did that to me too. I didn't read for a decade. I, I can't, I can't, just can't do it. I can't pick a novel up. <laughs> I just don't want to read. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I feel that. It took me years. <laughs> oh, really? Will it come back? Well, it, I like reading. It does. Yeah. It does. It comes back and you start with like really trashy fiction. Like it's yeah. just Netflix in a book. That's basically where it starts. And yeah. then slowly, slowly you get back to it. Short books first and then and you gradually you do build up but it took me a while <laughs> yeah because yeah i'm not there at all at the moment I like, like you though i also love a puzzle i'm not a cook anymore funnily enough i used to like cooking but now it's too time consuming and i just want to be playing with the kids yeah yeah so i just you know i just think you just fit it in where you can and and i, I don't have a huge amount of balance but again i think it's the thing is to make the priorities make yourself really aware of what the priorities are so you know i have another close friend who is a stay-at-home mum, and that is her priority like she wants to be there 24 7 for her son. And I have no problem with that. I think she's extraordinary and, but that's not me. And I would not be happy in that role. Mm. And I think it's a matter of not judging whatever person's decision is. You know, I have another friend who went back to, which I couldn't do, but she went back to full-time medicine as a doctor three and a half weeks after having her child. And to me, I was like, wow, God, that must be so hard on you. She's like, no, but Diana, I love my job. Like I love my, my child, but I also love my job and I'm fitting it in perfectly. So it's one of those, I think we just need to be whatever is good for, for, the, for the family and the person. And as long as everyone's, you know, happy with it and they've got good support, then we just have to accept that everyone's decision is their own and we can't try and influence that. And, and I think that gives you a lot of peace too, when you start just stop looking around at everybody else and, and realize that your decisions are your own and you're, and you're okay with them. Yeah. And as, as long as you're happy, it really doesn't 
kind of matter what anyone else thinks. I think that's the most liberating thing to realize is that as long as you're happy, it doesn't matter. Liberating is a good word. I agree. (laughs) And so in single motherhood, you were saying that your family has helped out a lot. Are there any other tips for single mums out there who are finding the balance quite difficult between work and being committed, having a career, kicking your own personal goals, but still being really present as a mother, having friends, maybe leaving time for a relationship in future? (laughs) You know, like how do you, what would your tips be for, for any other single mums who are listening because I know that it is quite overwhelming that's it's it's overwhelming to do it alone it's overwhelming to do it in a couple let alone by yourself and as a career woman yeah what are your kind of tips for that that one's a little bit harder to answer because I don't think I have it like most single mothers do like you know I live across the road from my parents I have a wonderful au pair and I think look an au pair is something that if you're a single parent and you've got a job and you can afford it definitely do people have this idea that au pairs cost thousands they cost 150 200 a week so it's not a they live with you obviously so it's you have to be prepared that someone's going to come and live in your house 24 7 and, and cook and eat the foods and everything that you do so it's a commitment on that front because you're never alone anymore but let's be honest as a single parent it's quite nice to have another adult in the house <laughs> I, I need an au pair for Nick <laughs> there, you there you go <laughs> you know and then they're all, and and this, the, the hard part about au pairs is that some of them come over and they just want to party and go out and other ones are really wonderful. So my current one is extraordinary. Like I want to keep her forever. She's so good. <laughs> um, she even had our Christmas photos with, the, with us yesterday. She's literally that much part of the family. So Oh, that's yeah. so sweet. I'm very, but I'm so lucky. Like she's extraordinary. I've had others that aren't as quite as good, but but that is a big key. I think as a single parent, you need to be able to, first one thing, be able to afford it if you can. So if you want to work and you can afford $150, $200 a week, it's usually cheaper than daycare anyway, let's be honest. Yeah. And the second thing is being okay with that. Because sometimes like when I first, I've had an au pair for eight years now. And when I first had them, people were like, oh, Jan has got an au pair. And I feel like I have <laughs> to say, well, I only pay her 150 a week. And they're like, oh, okay. Because people judge you thinking you that you've got all this money and you're like, nah. <laughs> the second thing that comes along with the whole interview we've been talking about is that give yourself a break. There are going to be days where you're pulling your hair out the house is a pigsty the kids are screaming and you just want to drop them off at daycare and that's okay you have to understand that every family's like that it's not just because you're a single mum it's because you have children and children get sad and they get tired and they cry <laughs> and and the quality time comes from making that commitment so I think that the hardest thing is giving the children quality time and for me that is putting the mobile away and taking the kids somewhere or playing the card game or watching a movie together but I think that time is essential um, and whatever interferes with that you have to just let that that thing has to be the sacrifice not the children oh yeah i know you are so inspiring <laughs> not me i, I just <laughs> 30, 36 years <laughs> so just to finish up i always like to ask uh, the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in these kinds of interviews and mm. i mean knowing how many times you've been in the media in your life there's probably not a lot left <laughs> and i'm sure a lot of it is in the book um just another hurdle which i will of course include a link to for everyone to get a copy but but yeah, are there any any small things like tattoos or allergies or things that you know people don't usually ask about? Um, I don't think so, Sarah. <laughs> um, Do you have any pet peeves or <laughs> peeved with anything? Like, I don't really know. I'm scared of sharks. <laughs> oh, okay, that's one. So no surfing. Yep, yeah, no. So that was one of the reasons I had to stop rowing because I was so when I moved to Sydney for medical school, they wanted you to row out at Dremoyne, and I'm like, not nah, too scared of sharks, so I stopped. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Like I'm literally petrified of them. Um, oh. I love musk sticks. If I'm having a, a naughty food day, I love to eat musk sticks. Oh, my God, those pink things. Yeah, pink cheap things or bananas. <laughs> That's so old school. <laughs> searching for musk sticks. It's great. It's hilarious. I don't know. Other than that, they're probably my two questions. Well, they were great. You're in bed every day. There's your little weird one. What? I, the, rent, the house can be a complete bomb site, but for some reason, my bed is my key that my mental health's going well. So if the bed's not made and someone walks in, they're like, oh, Yana needs a cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time we come over, I'll make sure. I'll check the bed first. There you go. There's my three. <laughs> and then the final question, since I love motivational quotes so much, is what is your favorite motivational quote? Oh, definitely. I, wanna, I mean, I've got my dare to dream, which I, which I sign off on, but my probably my, fo- my most, oh, goodness, I love motivational quotes too. I have to have two, sorry. My first one is that um, life is like building a fire. No matter, you know, it's it's hard work. You have to add stick after stick after stick until the right time comes that you light it, and you know, then all your dreams come forward. 
that's probably one of them I sort of explain in depth. Oh, that's yeah. Lovely. So it basically just means that you can't throw a log on the fire and expect it to burn. You've got to start off in small pieces, starting with the Kindle, then throwing a small log on and be patient. And then when the right time comes, you light it and an inferno comes through. That that one is one of my big ones. Amazing. You're um, one of the only people in the whole entire world that the Kindling was the Olympic athlete career yeah. and the fire came after that. <laughs> that's good. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, And the other one that I love is that, you know, we're often going to get to the end of our tether, so just tie a knot, hang onto the rope and swing until things get better. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I love motivational quotes. I do like a quote of the day thing on um, on my stories every day and I haven't heard either of those. Yeah, because I made them up. <laughs> <laughs> They're amazing. Yeah, I, I, I like them. Oh, go you. You're the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing so openly. You are such a legend, which I already knew, but I'm so glad to be able to share it to everyone. I mean, I'm sure everyone already knows, but um, you're just full of wisdom and knowledge and I think have given a lot of people permission in this episode to just be themselves, go with the flow and um, not be so hard on ourselves all the time. Yeah, that's, 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 if anything comes out, that's what I want to express to people. So thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining and hopefully catch up soon. Sounds great. Oh, my gosh, I'm still shivering from Yana's blow-by-blow of competing in an Olympic race. I hope you love this episode as much as I did. Yana is so different and refreshing in so many ways, and even though I've known her for a while now, I learned so much more from her in this conversation. Of course, links will be in the show notes to how you can buy her book and read more about her journey. And please do subscribe if you haven't already so you can keep up to date as each episode drops. We have an amazing pipeline for this year. I cannot wait to see how much Yay unfolds in 2019. Don't forget to screenshot this, of course, and tag Yana and myself so that we know what you got from this episode. And as I mentioned, the best share each week from each episode will win one of the Quote of the Day flipbooks, which have actually sold out between December the 3rd and January the third they all sold out which is just absolutely mind-blowing but of course I did keep a few for prizes so do get screenshotting and tagging and of course I would love it if you would please leave us a review just take a minute to leave a review if you're enjoying what you're hearing because that is obviously what keeps me going knowing that you are getting as much yay as I am so happy new year and I hope you're seizing your yay